Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Good afternoon. Nice. It's good to see you guys. Um, my name is Chris. I'm part of the team here at Lagan Valley Vineyard. If you're a guest, or a visitor, uh, you're incredibly, incredibly welcome with us. If you're also not a guest or visitor, you're also, also very, very welcome. Um, we're going to jump right in um, this morning. Uh, we're in the middle of a series that we started last week called What is the Church? We're going to continue that series. Uh, as Stu mentioned last week, if you missed it, go back and watch it. It was exceptional. We're, we're going to be teaching into a series uh, looking at what is the church for the next kind of six weeks. After that, we're going to kind of reteach into the series. We're not doing that because we don't want to write more talks. We're doing that because we want to try to relay ways in which you can join in and make covenant and choices around uh, what it means to be the church here in this area at this time. And so this week, we're going to be chatting about the idea of service or servanthood or how do we serve or how do we love like Jesus. And uh, so just a bit of a disclaimer, I'm going to jump in and it's going to be a little bit like teach heavy. So there's not going to be loads of like stories where you laugh at my expense or any that kind of stuff. We're going to really like dig down into this, try to get a bit of a feel for it, and then we'll talk about ways to respond to it. So are you up for that? Yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I have no plan B, guys. So um, <laughs> this is what we're doing this morning. So um, if you have your Bibles, turn to First John chapter 4, First John chapter 4, and we're going to be starting in verse 7. First John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Come, Holy Spirit. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I pray. Jesus, thank you for your word that is a life, that is a light and a lamp to us. God, by the power of your spirit, would you speak to our hearts and reveal your mind for us in your name. Amen. Amen. A, a few weeks ago, Regina kind of touched on it. Um, I, I, we invited a lot of our guys from Alpha to come to Move. Listen, you guys, if you've been around for the last few weeks, you'll have heard stories from Move and what God did in through it. It was, it was amazing. And there were two lads that we invited from Alpha to come to Move with us. And they had no church experience. They'd never been to a camp. Uh, one of them text like the thir- uh, like the Sunday before we left, and the Monday saying, "Is this still happening?" <laughs> We're like, "Yes, you need to be on a bus." Um, and they, they came to move. And the first few days, I couldn't help but notice them. I was like, "I'm not really sure they're loving it." Their facial expressions didn't like teenagers are hard to read facial expression wise, but they didn't look like they were having a great time. I was trying to figure it out. They were in our small group and they were asking loads of good questions. They were really curious about God, but just wasn't really sure whether they loved it or not. And the week after move, I was getting, I'm in a group chat with them with another leader. I was getting loads of really strange text messages. So I was getting like, Chris, what's, what's a synagogue? I was like, and they were texting me this at like 
10 o'clock on a Monday night. It was like, that's a pretty weird question. What's, what's a Pharisee? There's actually all sorts of questions. And what they were doing is they were continuing to read through the Bible. They were still curious. They didn't make a decision to follow Jesus. They were still on the fence, but they're still super, super curious. And so I kind of like, it, like as a youth pastor, I've kind of made a decision that I want to make as much time as possible to sit at the table of young people, to have conversations with where they're at and to talk about Jesus. And so I was 100% in for doing, doing coffee. And so I agreed to it. It was the following Wednesday. And the Monday and Tuesday and the Wednesday and the after that just were like one of those few, like groups of days where it just like everything kind of went wrong successionally. And uh, on the Wednesday, uh, I got a phone call like a few hours before it saying that one of my family members was in hospital and I had to go pick another one of my family members up to drop them down to hospital. And so I did that. And uh, I called Andy to let him know. And Andy was like, listen, just clear your schedule. Like, just go be your family, do whatever you got to do. And I was like, okay, but there's one commitment I can't sidestep. These two lads that wanted to meet for coffee, like I have to do it. And honestly, like just to be totally candid and transparent, the last place I wanted to be in that moment in time was having coffee with two young people talking about what's a synagogue, right? It just wasn't really high on my list of things that I wanted to do at that moment in time. And uh, I showed up and truthfully, I was like, oh, we'll, we'll go through the motions and the questions and all that kind of stuff. And what unraveled in the next two hours over coffee was, it's hard to put words to. We, uh, Sat down, I was like, well, how have you guys been since move? Like, we absolutely loved it. I was like, you guys need to tell your face <laughs> when I'm around you that you like it. And, um, and they were like, we really miss it. Can we go next year? I was like, yeah, of course, of course. I was like, where are you guys at? They're like, we've been reading the Bible. We've been reading through the Gospel of Mark and the and the other and had conversations. And then they were asking us. And I was with Josh Stewart, another one of our leaders. We were like, well, how do you guys read the Bible? And so we opened the John 1. The Word became flesh. We read through it. I kind of showed them how I read the Bible in the mornings. And uh, we had a bit of a conversation around it. I was like, well, what, is, what does that mean for you? You know, that God came to us. The trajectory of God is towards humanity. What does that mean for you? And they're like, that means I think that God's moving towards us. I was like, yeah. And then we moved on. They kept asking more and more questions. We ended up back in Luke 15, um, three parables, son, sheep, coin and uh, we unpacked it all and then about 90 minutes into this conversation like one of the the boys stopped and was like that's me we're reading through the prodigal the story of the prodigal son and when the son was heading back towards the father he's like that's me he's like I feel like I'm moving towards God and I'm not really sure what to do but we just unpacked that God's moving towards him and so there's an embrace moment so in that moment he was like I want to give my life to Jesus now usually in that moment I'm like let's do it seal the deal get the bible like, this is going to be amazing. And I couldn't help but be like, I really want to make sure they know what's happening in this moment. Like, do you understand what you're about to pass through? And so we had a conversation and I was like, listen, like following Jesus does not mean that everything's going to be easy and plain sailing and all your problems are going to go away. And one of the boys, the other boy stopped me and was like, oh no, we learned that at Move. When we heard Ken and Dina's story and we heard Andy and Emma's story, we realized that this isn't just about happy, clappy stuff. This is about God being with you and hard stuff. So we're like, okay, I think you understand this. And so we went into the uh, next room in Percival at uh, Exosome, and we opened the Bible, we prayed together, and we led them to Jesus. And it was amazing, like after it, like they opened their Bibles and were like, I was like, what are you doing? They were like writing their date, the date on the Bible of the, when they made a decision to follow Jesus. And I, I love that story for a multiple, like, for multiple different reasons. We've seen young people come to faith in classrooms, at home when they've went home from Alpha. We've seen them come to faith in youth, in church. We've seen them come to faith in all different spaces. But these young people went through Alpha. They went away to move and they sat with it for a week, wondering, searching and longing for God to speak to them. And then he did and he showed up in that coffee shop. 
But what I want to touch on and why I want to use that as an example is that walking into that coffee shop, if I'm honest, it was one of the last places I wanted to be. Wanted to be. It's one of the last things I wanted to walk into. But as I left two hours later, there was nowhere else I'd rather spend those last two hours. It did, some, did something in my heart and in my soul that I'm not quite sure how to put words to it. And although you might not have that exact experience, I think we can all relate to that in some sort of way where there's things that we don't want to do or feel like we're going to be a hassle or we dread that that's up and coming and then we get there and suddenly God does something in the middle of it and we leave being like, I'm so glad I went to that. I almost didn't do it. It's like the story of everyone who volunteers in youth ministry. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm not sure I want to do this and then they do it and they're like, this is amazing and they fall in love with it. And I think we all have that experience. You see, there's a point in our journey as followers of Jesus as disciples of Jesus, where the best thing that we can do is to lay our lives down for the sake of other people. And the most inconvenient of times often can be the most profound moments of encounter and revelation. C.S. Lewis says this, in self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm, not only of all creation, but of all being. Selfless love, selfless acts, acts of service, at times, if we're honest, can be really difficult to conjure up but in the end, they're often so rewarding. See, there's a point in our journey as followers of Jesus where the love of God is most profoundly accessed when it is shared and dispensed to other people. That's a big statement. We're gonna spend the next 30 minutes unpacking that. But the same way the scriptures tell us that as we give our lives away, we find it. When we dispense love, when we serve other people, often it's the very place that we experience profound love. Because C.S. Lewis puts it, we touch the very rhythm of creation and being, the beat of a different kingdom that isn't trying to strive for itself but longs to serve other people. The original design of how we are supposed to live and how the church is supposed to look. First John 4, verse 7. You guys okay? You're really quiet. You're all good. All right. Um, First John Chapter four, verse seven opens with this. Dear friends, love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who, lo- who loves has been born of God and knows God. The biblical context and concept of love here is active love. It is sacrificial, serving love. If you dig into the ancient text, compassion is the biblical word we get from this. It's a word that talks about love that isn't just lofty or abstract, but is actioned and has some sort of embodiment. See, the issue today is that we have an opposition to sacrifice. And we think the opposition to sacrifice is selfishness, which there's truth in that. But in the church, I think one of the biggest dangers we run into isn't just selfishness, but it's sentiment. Sentiment is love that never grows into anything else. It's unacted upon emotions and feelings. Sentiment is the seed that can blossom into compassion, into action, and into acts of service. But so often when it's left unattended to, it just remains as this idea, thought, or feeling. And with no embodied action, it gets really tricky. It's weeping at the news report when we turn on the TV, but just turning it into some sort of topical conversation with friends that evening. It's emotional investment without embodied action. It's being deeply moved by a sermon, but not really ever responding to it or actioning anything. It's the post on social media that we join on the bandwagon with to support something, but actually have no embodied response or action towards it. See, we live in a sentimental culture where we are inwardly moved and stirred, yet so often we are outwardly stagnant. 
a few years ago, um, me, Laura, and Stu walked into this venue, and honestly, we opened the door and walked in, and the worst smell I've ever smelt in my life. And like at my stag do, I got covered in a lot of stuff that I'm not going to mention. It was smelled 10 times worse than this. And I was like, what is that smell? We had no idea what it was. And eventually, we, it was like November time, we opened one of the stores, and there was like a rotten watermelon in the store. And honestly, like, it was one of those smells that you could, like, it was so bad, you could almost see the smell. Like, it was one of those sorts of smells. It was horrendous. Like, absolutely awful. If you have a stag do up and coming, just buy a watermelon now, park it for like a year, and it's the ultimate torture. But I've never smelled anything as bad in my life. We originally bought it for our big church day out, and um, had sat in there, we had forgotten about it, and over time, it had rotted and rotted and rotted and began to smell absolutely horrendously. Who knew watermelons stank so bad? Haven't been able to eat it since. And, uh, but there's an interesting idea there that what was initially meant to nourish us, if left unattended to or just ignored, if left unactioned upon over time, can become something that is actually the opposite of nourishing. It can be quite damaging. And that's what happens with sentiment. That's what happens. We become so stirred, caught up in the moment, caught up in the hype, caught up in the story, but with no action. Eventually, we can become stagnant. I think this is where disillusionment happens in the church, where we talk about faith and action. Sometimes if we are in a culture of faith where we say the right terminologies, we think we're doing the things, our language betrays us. But in this case, love is embodied and it is action. What we experience in these moments are supposed to nourish us, but they're supposed to have legs to it that walk from this place to the world around us. See, Jesus lived with no gap between his heart and his feet. Every time we read in scriptures that Jesus was moved in the spirit, there's a description of how that movement in his spirit was acted out. Feeding the 5,000, raising Lazarus from the dead, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is literally a parable on sentiment versus sacrifice. Look at it. Jesus implicitly told us and reiterated that love is acted out. Love takes the seed of sentiment and allows it to blossom into something that is external and actioned. When we make decisions based off what is happening in our hearts, this is when love is acted out. Sentiment that doesn't grow into service, left unattended to, is like a watermelon in the store. It's not going to be very nice. There's a point in our journey as follows with Jesus, where the love of God is most profoundly accessed and experienced when we dispense it to others. When we don't, I think we become disillusioned. Because how we once experienced God no longer seems to be the way that you do. And could it be, it's not that God's silent, but God is inviting you into more, wants to change your appetite for not just moments of emotional encounter, but embodiment of love around us. Verse 8 says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. If we jump into the Old Testament, there's a moment where God reveals himself to Moses and there's a, a, a whole spiel that comes with it. But at the end of it is this phrase that the Lord is steadfast in love. John in his letter here summarizes it simply that God is love. The character quality of God summed up in one word, the infinite God defined in one word, love. And this is important because if God is power, then the way we become like God and show the world what God is like is by lording that power over people. If God is knowledge and only knowledge, then the way we become like God is just by attaining lofty insights and knowledge, and therefore the world can know what God's like. But that's not what it says, that God is love, and therefore compassion 
action-loved acts of service is the way that we become like God, and the world knows what God is like. Matthew 5, we're told to love our enemies. And at the end of that little passage, there's a phrase that's thrown in there that's a pretty high bar. It says, be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. It seems like a pretty high bar, right? Like there's no real room to wiggle with that. You see, in our culture and context, we assume and we know that the word perfect means without flaw. That's when we talk about perfection, we talk about flawlessness. But in this context, in the ancient context, the word perfection spoke more to compassion. So therefore, more accurately translates, be compassionate as your father is compassionate. Love as I have loved. This is how the world will see what God is like. This is the aim of the disciple, aim of our lives and the mission of the church is to become love, embodied love and acts of service to the world around us. This is our aim. And our actions and reactions reveal the transformation of our heart. How we bear with one another or don't bear with one another our experience of God's love is measured by what we extend to other people. Brennan Manning says this, if I'm not in touch with my own belovedness, I cannot touch the sacredness in others. The biblical worldview of identity, we talk about this all the time we go into schools in Alpha, the biblical worldview and identity is the highest view on identity compared to any other religion, worldview, or philosophy. Genesis tells us that we are set apart, made in the image of God, we are the Imago Dei, that every person is made in his likeness. So every person is sacred regardless of class, status, or position. The people whose opinions drive you mad, they are made in the image of God and they are sacred. Those who have the alternative political stance than you, who infuriate you, they are made in the image of God and they are sacred. The refugee and the homeless made in the image of God, the victims of the crimes that we read about and also the perpetrators of those crimes are made in the image of God. Even Liverpool fans made in the image of God. Sacred. Every last one of them, the person to your left and to your right. And so often through shame and confusion and what's yelled at us, we think that we have to earn what was breathed into us freely. That if we can figure out just how to get our stuff together, we can be associated with God when it's actually where we begin. So we've discovered that when we're empowered to draw out what God has placed in other people, we also discover what God has placed in us. Jesus' ministry is really interesting because before he does anything at all, there's a moment where the father affirms his identity. This is my son in whom I am pleased. Before he's done any miracles or performed anything else, he is completely affirmed by the Father. His identity completely affirmed. Eugene Peterson words it this way. Jesus is the story of the beloved who became a lover. One who was affirmed by God in his identity and because of that was able to be a lover to all people. So we are to do the same. And so if we are called to be the beloved who then love the world around us, who are the people that we're to love. There's two different types of people I think that we're called to love, siblings and strangers. I'm gonna to touch and kind of dwell more on siblings in part two of this. I'll talk more about strangers, but I'm gonna to touch on both at the moment. I'll skim over uh, strangers, but siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ, not just our immediate family, but also this family. Dear friends, love one another is how this passage start, starts. 
You see, in this letter in 1 John, if you look at the whole book, you notice there's a slight shift when uh, this passage arrives. This term, dear friends, or in other words, beloved, is almost a shift from this wider lens of a letter to like a more personal approach. John jumps out of the generic, here's what you're to do as the church, and he makes it personal. He jumps into the first person and he addresses the community as beloved. He's talking to a community of people. This is interesting because John wrote letters, but he also wrote a gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the gospels. They each give us a portrait and an image of the person of God. And held together, we get a unique picture of Jesus. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. That was a hard word. Um, And what that pretty much means is they... uh, they were recorded and pieced together around the same sort of time. There's a lot of congruency in it. John's gospel, however, is written, is written 60 to 70 years later. At that time, he's the last living disciple, and this is important because he was around the other three gospels. He had read them. He was familiar with them. And now he's looking at a community of people. He's looking at the church in this context. And he writes a gospel that reiterates some stuff that other gospels don't. And the reason why that is is because he's addressing what's happening in the water. He's addressing the church in this moment. He's saying there are things that you've read through these gospels and you've missed the significance of it. So he overemphasized it in this gospel account. Last week we ended with bread and wine off the back of um, the Passover. And John in his account of this picks up and two other elements that are incredibly important. In John 13, verse three, we read this. Jesus knew that the Father put all things under his power and he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got off from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. We get an insight in John's gospel to two alternative elements, a towel and a basin. Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. The ultimate picture of sacrificial love and service, of compassion. Jesus loved his disciples in a way that they were completely unworthy of. That very night, Jesus knew that they would scatter and when he needed them most, they were gonna go and run away. In fact, one of them already at that moment of time has already sold himself out. He's left the table. He's given his whole self to this community and knowing they're gonna hurt him, he still washes their feet. When we're called to love brothers and sisters and family and commit to church, I wonder if some of you have had the experience of letting your guard down and being disappointed. I wonder if some of you have waited in the community to find healing and actually find maybe the opposite. What do you do with that? What do you do with that as as we're committing to be the church and family? We take off our outer garment, we grab a basin and a towel, and we wash their feet. And I know that sounds hard. And this is why Jesus says, I'll go first. Love that absorbs hurt and serves those who hurt them. He took off his outer clothing. This is important that it's emphasized in John's gospel too that we must undress the old self to put on the new self, the presentable self, the rights that we think we have, the privilege that we think we have, we take them off to embrace the new. This is how we love our siblings, with a towel and a basin by serving them. You see, the integrity or the measure of our love, if we're to serve an embodied love, is measured by those closest to us. 
in the church and most of my life growing up. I was really good as a young adult and teenager doing summers of two, three, four, five weeks of service where I would do these missions of serving people, but I would come back into my school or my street or whatever it is, my football team, and I would completely miss what it means to serve the people that are around me. I think in the church, it can be really easy to be good at 100 meter, 200 meter, 300 meter sprints of service and sacrifice, but miss the marathon of what God invites us into in servitude. And the difficulty with that is as we lay our lives down, we find it, and so we miss out in life when we scapegoat out of that. I can do back-to-back meetings, Monday to Wednesday, and listen to what people are going through and all that kind of stuff. I can be my best self in those moments, but so often after that, I arrive home and I'm having dinner with, with Jenny and I'm irritable and annoyed, likely because Manchester United got hammered at the weekend as well, and she gets my worst self. So often those who are closest to us, those who we love the most, they're actually the people that at times get the worst of us. And if our love, the truest measure of our love is those who are closest to us, it means that the table you find yourself at most frequently, both your immediate family and also your tribe, you're to make it your habit to strip off your old self, to grab the towel and the basin and to wash their feet metaphorically because I hate feet. But we're to serve them. We are to make it a habit to take the place of the servant, to love as God has loved us. And Regina put it so eloquently, as we do that, the love of God is poured into us. Because in self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm of not only all creation, but of all being, how we are created to exist. See, there becomes a point in our relationship and our disciple Jesus when the primary way we experience God's love more deeply is to share it more scandalously to love as he has loved us, a love that suffers, keeps no account of wrong, and forgives 70 times seven. This is the criteria of the world knowing what God is like and for us to be like him. And if you've ever read through the New Testament and heard the story and read the stories of how the Spirit of God moved, miracle upon miracle upon miracle. If you dig into your church history, the miracles we read about in the early church. And I don't know if you find yourself asking the question, why did they have so much power? Why do we not see things like that? We may see it in glimpses and in moments. We always contend for it. But it felt like it was miracle after miracle after miracle. See, the early church never imitated the miracles of Jesus without also equally imitating the sacrificial posture of Jesus. They served. See, in today's context, those who have power don't serve. They lord it over people. And those who serve often find themselves in places of service because they have no power. But in the kingdom of God, it's totally different. The kingdom of God, power always serves love, never the other way around. Our power is we have the power to serve others. When David the giant killer showed up to Saul the king and said, I will go and slay Goliath, how did he identify himself? A servant of the Lord. That was how he identified himself to stand before him. And when he stood in front of Goliath, it wasn't about what he could do, but it was about who he served and stood on behalf of. And if you look through the life of David, it's, this is fascinating, do this. Every time David's life gets a little bit funky and weird, it's because he forgets that first he was a servant before a giant killer or a king or whatever else. He was called to be a servant. You see, 
through the cross, we have an inheritance. I don't want to dwell too much on this, but we have an inheritance through Jesus' death. We get to experience life and life to the full. When we get the inheritance of the cross, but we don't get the attitude of the cross, we're left with entitlement, where we think we just get it and that's it. But when we get the inheritance of the cross with the attitude of the cross, which is sacrifice, we live into empowerment where we begin to see God move in our midst in ways that we can't comprehend, not because we've conjured it up, but because we've taken the place of the servant to lay our lives down so that we can find it. Secondly, strangers. Jesus was uh, known for being the most hospitable man, yet he never had a home. The Bible implores us to be hospitable to strangers. Jesus was the picture of, of hospitality. And there's a moment in Luke 15, which I've referenced already, where Jesus tells three stories. And this is really interesting. Because in those three stories, between the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or the prodigal son, we realize a lot of stuff. Jesus, firstly, is preoccupied with the lost, the least, and the out of place. These stories and why he told them was prompted by outsiders, people who kept the law, Pharisees and religious teachers. There he prompted these questions. And out of response to those questions, Jesus tells stories. And what we learn, and this is really interesting, what we learn is as Jesus tells these stories about what God is like, the Pharisees and these people, they begin to mutter. That when he explains what God is like and how he moves towards broken people, they begin to mutter. See, Luke grew up reading the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. That word muttered also appears in the Old Testament. It appears whenever the Israelites are journeying into the promised land when they've left slavery and they begin to mutter. The Israelites long to go back to what they once knew as slavery as opposed to unknown freedom. They long for the familiar. And there's something in us, something in our human condition that longs for comfort. Like we just want to know what is expected. If we can just know what's around the corner, no matter how hard it is, we tend to find a little bit of security and safety in that. But Luke 15, as Jesus is walking through Samaria, which is really interesting because Samaria is the place of the outcast, the lost, and the stranger. He begins to talk of a new kingdom, what God is like, what he is coming to establish here. And that the God that they talk about, he moves towards the broken and the messy. He moves towards the least and the lonely. And these religious teachers, they don't like that because it's very messy. And so they begin to mutter. Why do they begin to mutter? Because this all sounds unknown. This all sounds like it's beyond the confines of the temple walls. It's behind their rules that they can keep and keep everything in order. It's not predictable and it can't be earned and it just sounds too messy. Luke is drawing the attention of the readers back to Exodus because the promised land that God has for the church, which is for every stranger to become a sibling, that if we want to travel into those spaces, it requires the unknown. In our context, if we want to be the church that God longs for us to be, we have to pass through unpredictability beyond the safe walls of this confine and out into the city. Service that goes past the family and to the stranger. Love that doesn't stay at home, but goes after the lost and runs after the lost. You see a church in the wild get to experience the wild things of God. The Father's compassion doesn't stay at home. It goes to Samaria. It goes to the land of the outcast to live among strangers, totally at home in ourselves like Jesus. 
not conforming to the world, but transforming it as we go. He is the good shepherd. He is the woman who sweeps for the coin and throws a party. He is the father who waits at the window for the slight head of a son passing over the hill, running to him, embracing shame so that he can embrace grace. See, love has a trajectory and it is out there. There's an old Quaker phrase, an enemy is one whose story we haven't heard. There's a lesson that we can learn from the life of Jesus. We don't know the conversations he had behind closed doors, but there's a lesson that we can learn. Is that understanding people's stories and their struggles is, requires more time and more effort than condemning them. It's much more difficult to do that than to just shout at them from a street corner. But it is vastly more rewarding to do that. Bonhoeffer words it like this. Only love gets close enough to know. In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm not only of all creation, but of all being. Jesus came to earth to self-give, to give of himself. He came to be a servant. He came to serve, not be served. And the word servant or serving, there's two Greek definitions of it. The first one speaks of a hard hand, one who's transactionally obliged. They're paid somewhat. It's probably not going to be fair, but there's some sort of contract built into it that they will serve their master and there's a written contract, a binding contract inside of that. And then there's another word used for servant in the New Testament called doulos, which actually speaks more to a slave than a servant. It's someone who has no rights whatsoever, no privilege whatsoever, does what the master wants, when it wants, how it wants, whenever it wants. It has no rights whatsoever. A slave by definition. That is the word in the Greek that is used when Jesus says he comes to serve, doulos. The divine, the highest became doulos. Stepping into our context so that we could know him and know what God's like washing the feet of the disciples. All authority has been given to him, yet he submits himself to serve others in love. And we know that he goes down even further. We know he died for us so that we can live. C.S. Lewis, in one, at the end of one of his books, talks about this idea of a diver diving to the depths of the ocean to a shipwreck to find treasure. And he explains that this is what Jesus does. He goes down to the depths, the highest in the room, goes to the depths of the seas, down to the shipwreck to receive the treasure, to bring it back to the Father and say, look what I found. That treasure is you and that is me. The Father sent his Son in love. The Son laid down his life for us, for God's glory and for our good. The Queen of England is referenced to a conversation she had a few years ago with a Church of England um, priest and which she explained that uh, in her lifetime she longs for Jesus to come back and the conversation goes is that because that he will make everything right and wipe every tear and all this kinds of stuff and she's like well that's of course all good but the reason why she longed for Jesus to come back is so she could have the opportunity to take off her crown and lay it at his feet I think this gets lost on us so much that the one who holds it all together, the one whose name is above every other name, the one who is able to do more we can comprehend or understand, he is a servant. 
he came to serve. And as he laid down his life, we get to experience that. And so as he has loved us, we get to love others. See, culture exalts the best looking, the most successful, the richest, the one who appears in the right way, but God, he exalts the humble servant that goes down in humility, lift others up to see them flourish. And so as we come into the land, like my tendency in these moments, right, is like, let's, let's get up for this. Like, let's go do it, right? Like, I probably sway more towards that side of like, let's get everyone up for it. And I just have this sense this morning that as we dwell on this and sit with this, that the Lord is beginning to drop in little seeds and the question as we come to response, we facilitate this all the time as we facilitate response, is like, we want to help you guys respond to what God's doing, what the Spirit's doing in the room. But the reality is this response is on you. See, what's mad when we dig into this? We get asked this all the time. People talk about addiction or cycles and bad habits, all this kind of stuff. All those things, all those patterns of sin and destruction, they feast when we focus on ourselves, but they starve when we focus on other people. This is what it means to embrace life, to live the Jesus way, where we lay down our lives so that others can find it. Eugene Peterson says this, watch what God does and then you do it. Like children who properly learn behavior from their parents, mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get anything from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Our inheritance is life. And the attitude of that inheritance is sacrifice. And the other side of that is empowerment. If we long to be the church that God longs for us to be, it doesn't look like obtaining positions of power in the highest places. It looks like undressing our old selves, picking up a basin and a towel and washing the feet of our city, serving the least and the lonely. The story of Jesus, the beloved who became a lover. That has to be our story too. He wants to export what works at home. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you in a moment to close your eyes and whatever you feel comfortable to to find yourself in a position to respond. I'm going to call out a few people in the room that I, I sense God is speaking to. If that's you, you respond in your own way. It's the Spirit who makes rumors reality. It's His work that makes it realities in our hearts. And so I want to give an opportunity for the spirit. We know that when two or three are gathered, there also is the spirit of the Lord, where there's freedom. And so I wanna give a moment for the spirit to do what only he can do in these moments. And so if you're able, why don't you close your eyes? Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit.
with your eyes closed. For some of you, I sense that almost in front of you, you sense Jesus kneeling before you, taking out the towel and the basin and washing your feet, the dirt off your feet. The dirt that symbolizes all the mileage, all the decisions and choices, everything that's been wrapped up in your life up until this point. And he wipes it clean. He calls you beloved, the one whom he loves. For some of you in your heart, you have this sense of almost like repentance for the times that you've been stirred but stagnant. There's no condemnation around that. It's the kindness of God that points that out in us because he's inviting us into more and life until its fullness. And so Holy Spirit, would you drop those seeds? Would you nourish them? And would you give us the courage to embody them? For some of us, privilege or passion or preference has been how we viewed serving. In this moment, maybe the Holy Spirit has highlighted that that is putting a ceiling on you encountering the life that God has for you. And so would you have the audacious permission to step into everything that God has for you? the most unexpected places, the coffees you don't want to go to, the things you sign up to serve for, and then you think, why did I do that? All those sorts of moments, that they would be doorways and moments to encounter God in a way that you can't otherwise. Come, Holy Spirit, do your work among us. encourage you guys as you go from this place we've just learned that the spirit of God isn't confined to a building or a place but he longs to meet us in every way shape and form good questions in an unhurried presence create the context for encounter it's what Jesus did when he invited people to his seat and so for you spend time with Jesus unhurried and ask him questions don't just tell him stuff ask him questions and also on the flip side of that some of you guys, we've just heard about Alpha. Like, they, and I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say this. They, like, we've well over 20 classes with multiple classes inside that that want to do Alpha this year, another group of 150. The only thing holding us back from doing more Alphas is people and finance, but for this metaphor and point, people. And if we believe what the Gospels tell us is true, that good questions in an hurry presence creates the atmosphere for encounter. The amazing thing about Alpha is it gives you all the good questions. All you have to do is show up and be yourself and be unhurried. Young people don't need cool or funny or any kind of stuff. They need brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, aunties and uncles that will sit at their table, hear what's going on in their lives, not just tell them what's wrong with them or why what they're doing is wrong, but to love them there and then, love that moves towards them. 
And so please don't discount yourself from that. That is us officially finished. Um, I hope you guys have an amazing Sunday. Don't get annoyed over dinner. Embrace each other. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Remember to sign up for the family meeting and uh, have an amazing Sunday. God bless. If we can pray for you, we would love to do that too. Please come up front. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much. God bless.